At Specsavers, we've always believed everyone should have access to the best eye care. So we've put advanced eye health scanning in the following stores. <clears throat> Aberdeer, Aberdeen, Abergavenny, Aberystwyth, Abingdon, Accrington, Acom, Airdrie, Aldershot, Alfreton, Alloa, Annick, Workshop, Worthing, Wrexham, Wyndham, Yardley, Yeovil, York. <clears throat> Actually, should have just said nationwide. Advanced eye health scanning at a Specsavers near you. We thought you should know. Additional charge of £10 for OCT scan. Ask in store for details. Today's case is one of the most bungled cases we've ever looked into for stolen lives. A young girl goes out for a night of dancing and arcade games with friends, but she never comes home. And what we hear so many times, the police would write the case off as a teen runaway situation. Witness statements would not be taken. Suspects would not be interviewed for almost a decade. Evidence was horribly mishandled and lost. All the while, a mother grieves for her lost daughter in a small country town where so many people went missing in this time frame. This is Jessica's story. Our special investigation into the abduction of two teenage girls 17 years ago. Vanessa Conlon and Jessica Small were only 15. The scene, the main street of Bathurst, west of Sydney. Both girls were taken in the middle of the night. Vanessa would escape, but Jessica hasn't been seen since. For years, local police did little about the girl's abduction and Jessica's suspected murder. But nearly two decades on, this cold case is finally cracking. Jessica Small was born July 27, 1982, in Perth, Western Australia. She would be the youngest child to Ricky and Stephen Small. Jessica had two doting older siblings, a sister Rebecca, and a brother, Matthew. Unfortunately, and this seems how things go, but Ricky and Stephen would separate when Jessica was only two years old. Ricky would fly herself and the three young children across the country to settle in Bathurst, New South Wales. Bathurst is a small country town, about 120 miles northwest of Sydney. It's a town that I lived in for my three years of university. It's a beautiful little country town that I am still fond of. It's known for its yearly car race, where the usual population of about 30,000 almost doubles. In saying that, this wasn't a sleepy little country town where no one locks their doors. That old trope. When I was at university in the early 2000s, not long after Jessica went missing, crime was high. In particular, crimes against women. Sexual assaults in particular. We, being young women, would get regular talks on keeping ourselves safe. And we would get escorted by security if we had to leave the dorm after dark. At the time, family would describe Jessica as being bright and a tenacious child who grew up to be an intelligent yet troubled teen with a large group of friends who adored her. By 1997, the family were living on Fish Parade in Bathurst. However, 15-year-old Jessica was not there often. 
Armchair sleuths would point to Jessica's unstable living situation as proof she ran away from home, but more on that later. Jessica and Ricky had a rocky relationship. They would fight about the usual suspects. Jessica wanted money, but Ricky couldn't give it to her. Jessica would sneak out in the middle of the night and go to parties that she wasn't allowed to. Jessica would tell friends that this frustrated her, as it seemed that Ricky would care about what she was doing some of the time, and other times, Ricky would not know where Jessica was and didn't seem to care. Jessica would go on to make accusations against her mother, saying that Ricky would tell her she was going to buy groceries, and instead she would go to the pub and spend the grocery money on alcohol. Because of this, Jessica was not living permanently with her mother, but also spending nights with her sister Rebecca, as well as some friends. Things seemed to spiral further for Jessica around the time of her disappearance. The only structure she had in her life was school. However, come April or May 1997, she would drop out of the 10th grade. So, Jessica had nothing to occupy her day. She had no school, no job and no home. The only stable thing in her life at the time was her best friend, 14-year-old Vanessa Conlon, who was in the grade below Jessica at high school and a close neighbour. The pair would do everything together. Jessica travelled to Sydney with Vanessa to do some shopping, something the pair did often. Vanessa would later report there was nothing unusual about her friend at this time. However, the pair would not see each other for almost two weeks after this. Jessica would travel to Orange, about an hour's drive from Bathurst. She would make this trip with another friend, Ricky Vincent. But what was going to be a two-week trip was cut short when Jessica was allegedly asked to leave after bringing some boys back to the apartment to quote-unquote party. Wednesday, October 22nd, 1997, three days before Jessica's disappearance. Vanessa would later report Jessica's appearance had changed dramatically. She had cut her hair short and stopped wearing makeup. Now, I've asked myself often in the years I've followed this case why this was a standout point in the subsequent inquest. These are standout traits of a person who has been sexually assaulted. Unfortunately, Jessica isn't here anymore to explain or give us these answers. It's food for thought, though. On the same day, Jessica asked the owner of a local hangout spot, Amuse Me, Mal Pollard, someone who she was friendly with. She asked Mal to watch a bag of hers that was allegedly filled with clothes. This is another standout point to me. It's mentioned in the inquest and never again. But what happened to this bag? Do we know for a fact what was in there? If it was filled with clothes, was Jessica planning to run away at some point? We don't know. 
Friday, October 24th, 1997. Jessica would spend the night at another friend, Chris Hogan's home, in the neighbouring suburb of O'Connell. The following day, October 25th, Chris's dad would give the pair a ride into Bathurst for them to get lunch and for Jessica to grab some clean clothes from her mother. They would stay there until late afternoon. Jessica would confirm with her sister Rebecca that she would meet her at the Amuse Me Arcade that evening at 10pm. Jessica would then walk to Vanessa's house and the pair would walk into town together. They dropped into one of the many Bathurst pubs to grab some money from Ricky to buy some food at a local takeaway shop. Over the course of the evening, Vanessa would report that Jessica only had a couple of drinks, maybe two or three. And while she was feeling the effects of the alcohol, there was no way she was drunk. The pair then headed to the Amuse Me Arcade, where they played pool and danced to music on the jukebox with a large group of friends. It seems a group came and went from this arcade several times throughout the night. At one point, they would be in the King's Parade Park, consoling another friend whose brother had recently died. Another time, they left the Amuse Me Arcade with classmate Richard Dennis to drive to the home of another friend, Ben Clark, about five miles away. When they got there, Ben wasn't home, so they drove back to the arcade centre. At some point, Jessica and Vanessa got separated from their friends, and by the time they returned to the Amuse Me Arcade, it had closed. After walking around town for a bit and retracing their steps across the different venues they were at that night, looking for their friends, they couldn't find anyone. They initially considered going home, but decided to walk back to Ben's home instead. So the car came along here. He was driving really quite slowly. He turned and looked at us, did a U-turn, came down here and pulled up just down here. And you made a split-second decision to get in that car. Yeah, and it's a decision I've regretted for the rest of my life. This was around 12.40am. Jessica and Vanessa were walking towards Kings Park Parade along William Street when they noticed a white Holden Commodore sedan vehicle driving past before it stopped and turned around, parking on the other side of the road. Now, Jessica and Vanessa were no strangers to hitchhiking. It was 1997, so hitchhiking, especially in a small country town, it was still a thing. And Jessica and Vanessa would take turns securing the ride. This was Vanessa's turn. Also, it is worth mentioning there are no eyewitnesses as to what happened next. This is solely Vanessa's version of events. I'm not saying this to try to discredit Vanessa or because I don't believe her. The police would later state in the coronial inquest that Vanessa was a trustworthy and believable witness and that her story would remain consistent over the decades that would follow. As it was Vanessa's turn, she approached the driver to ask for a ride. She would later report never seeing this person before although he would indicate that he had seen the pair at the Amuse Me Arcade earlier that night. 
Jessica sat on the nearby small brick wall and waited. After a small chat, Vanessa beckoned Jessica over, with Vanessa getting into the front passenger seat and Jessica behind her in the back. Vanessa gave the driver the directions to their friend Ben's home on Hereford Street. On the drive, Vanessa would later recall distinctively noticing a hole in the passenger side footwell, something that struck her as strange as she could see the road whizzing by under her feet. She'd never seen this before, it stood out to her. The trio headed off with the driver stopping several hundred metres from Ben's home, in an area with no lighting and no houses. He stopped the car and turned off the headlights. The driver would take off his seatbelt and order Jessica to come to him. Vanessa would speak up in her defence, but this only turned the driver's attention to her and he grabbed her by the throat, pushing her back in her seat. Jessica took this opportunity and opened the car door to run away. The driver let go of Vanessa and reached towards a fleeing Jessica. The struggle back and forth would continue with the girls desperately trying to leave the car. Vanessa would later describe having some of her hair ripped out while escaping. She started screaming and running towards the direction of Ben's house. Vanessa would later state that she thought she heard Jessica right behind her. She could hear her friends screaming for help, but she did not stop or look back to check. She was too scared, and she did not stop running until she reached the first home, that of Vicky Connors. Vanessa would bang on the windows until Vicky woke up to see what the noise was, and the police were called. The only issue was, where was Jessica? She was not with Vanessa. She was not right behind her like Vanessa thought. The driver had left by this point, assumably with Jessica still inside, screaming for her life. The last reported sighting of the vehicle was just after 1am. Colin Cole was driving along Sydney Road that leads out of Bathurst towards Oberon, about nine minutes from where Jessica was last seen. Colin would later report to police that a dirty white Holden Commodore came out of the street to his left at high speeds with its headlights off. Colin had to slam on his brakes so not to hit the other car, braking so hard that it caused his own car to stall. The other car, driving on the wrong side of the road, would be a little further down the road before turning its headlights on. Colin could not see the licence plates. Now, Colin would be adamant that he called the police when he heard of Jessica's disappearance, but no records exist that this call was made in the police records. Maybe he didn't call. Given the lack of interest the police gave this case and how little witness statements were recorded and followed up, we will never know. However, this statement was officially taken in July of 2011, 14 years after Jessica was last seen. Vanessa was not even interviewed. The one person who could have given police all the information they needed to find Jessica's abductor. At the time, they did not believe Vanessa's version of events. They had their theory that Jessica had run away from her poor home environment, 
and that Vanessa was lying to cover for her friend. And her other friends also did not want to go to the police because they were all previously in trouble with the police for small misdemeanours and they did not want to bring further attention to themselves. Collins and Vanessa's statements were not the only ones from that night that police chose to ignore and not investigate further. Just before 1am, Robert Fitzpatrick, who lived in Hereford Street, like the girl's friend Ben Clark, Robert would be woken at just before 1am by screams for help. He would look out his window and about 100 feet from his home, he could see an off-white Holden Commodore stopped near his home and a scuffle taking place. A smaller-looking man aged between 30 and 40 years old got out of his car and went to the trunk, removing something that Robert could not make out. Robert would later report hearing a bang with the driver leaning over the back seat before driving off. In this case, Robert saw the licence plate, but he couldn't find a pen to record the letters and numbers. He did remember it having either a Queensland or Canberra licence plate, however. He also did not call the police at the time. He thought he was witnessing a domestic dispute and did not want to get involved. He went into the Bathurst Police Department when he heard Jessica was missing. Police dismissed him, and they did not take his statement. It wouldn't be until late 2011 that police would take an official statement of what he had seen. Diane Edmonds, who lived in an isolated rural home halfway between Bathurst and Oberon, because she was the only home in the area surrounded by bushland, she was surprised that in the early hours of October 27, 1997, she heard a car. When she looked out her window, she saw a car driving down a bush track that led to a creek. She had never seen a car drive down there before. Because it was still dark, she could not make out the make or model of the car, just that it was a light-coloured vehicle. But she was worried it was teens drinking and partying at the creek. Again, police dismissed her call and didn't investigate. Diane would not be contacted again until May 2012 for an official statement, almost 15 years after Jessica went missing. At that point, investigators regarded this story so significant that they made a reenactment of the car travelling down the bush track. An excavation of the creek area was also carried out at this time, in the hope of finding some evidence. Unfortunately, nothing relevant was found. And finally, 11-year-old Kayla Bryan was spending the weekend of October 25, 1997 with her father. It would not be until her mother picked her up four days later that her terrified daughter would recall being approached and grabbed by a man in the Bathurst city centre. Kayla and her mother reported this to the police when she realised that this may be connected to Jessica's disappearance, but they were never contacted again for further information. It would seem that the police disregarded any report that did not fit their runaway narrative, and it would not be until the formation of Strike Force Karakar 2 
that any of the witnesses were officially interviewed. A strike force made up of investigators to look further into missing persons in the Bathurst region, and it was formed in late 2011. This would be the first time we would see any movement in the case, but by this time, suspects had moved away, memories of the witnesses had faded, and any evidence they did have had been long destroyed. But we will talk more about Strike Force Karaka 2 a bit later. In the years following Jessica's disappearance, some evidence was discovered that was linked to Jessica. In 1998, forestry workers in the Janolan State Forest near Oberon, they found some items of women's clothing, a bottle of bleach, as well as a blanket and women's underwear that were covered in blood. Something that should have sent up alarm bells for the police. Well, you would think so anyway, but not in this case. The evidence was destroyed a year later without a proper investigation into the possibility it could have been Jessica's. Not only that, but Jessica's family were not even informed these items were found until long after they were destroyed, so there was never a chance for them to possibly identify the clothing. Mal Pollard, the owner of Amuse Me, the same person that had a friendship with Jessica and was holding her bag of clothes for her in the days prior to her disappearance. Mal would later report to the police that on the night Jessica went missing, he had a strange conversation with a man he did not know prior, who told him he was working at the Oberon timber mill. This man told Mal he liked the look of Jessica and said, quote, Who's that? She looks like she's up for a good time. Unquote. Mal would later report the man being aged in his mid-thirties, five foot eight or 180 centimetres tall, medium build with a bit of a beer belly and dark hair. He was wearing jeans, runners and a long-sleeved button-checkered shirt. But as with the other witness accounts, this was also ignored by the police. No one from Amuse Me was ever interviewed by police, this particular statement was not taken until Strike Force Karaka 2 contacted him in 2011. But from this description, two persons of interest would be determined Craig Robertson and Andrew McBride. Andrew McBride would not only fit the description Mal had given police, and he worked at the Oberon Timber Mill. Records also showed that McBride was visiting Bathurst on the weekend Jessica went missing, but he left the area that morning after. He'd been staying in a motel in Bathurst and drove to Sydney where he lived. In fact, he not only left, but he left in so much of a hurry that he did not check out of the motel he was staying at, taking the key with him. When interviewed, McBride didn't just deny being in Bathurst that weekend, but he claimed he had never visited Bathurst ever, even though bank account transactions proved otherwise. He was then confronted with a number of appearances he had in Bathurst local court for assault and passing bad checks, charges he has denied to this day, along with being involved in Jessica's disappearance. It was only then he would admit to being in Bathurst. 
police have stated he's still a person of interest. Craig Robertson also fit the description of the man seen at the Amuse Me Arcade, and he did work at the Oberon Timber Mill as well. Back in 1997, a witness told police that he worked with Robertson, and he heard that Robertson sold his white Holden Commodore around the time Jessica disappeared. Robertson was in Bathurst on that weekend, but he really couldn't tell police where he was or what he was doing or who he was with. He also left Bathurst soon after. Robertson had prior criminal convictions of violence against women, and he had an unhealthy interest in teen girls. Robertson is still considered a person of interest, but he has been steadfast in maintaining his innocence. A June 2014 coronial inquest handed down its final findings. It was a thorough and lengthy inquest, spending almost three weeks and including the testimony of over 50 witnesses. It was concluded that while there was no direct evidence to link either McBride or Robertson to the abduction, there was also no evidence to eliminate either of them from being involved. It was concluded the police at the time had tunnel vision and let the family down in not taking Jessica's disappearance seriously. And that unfortunately, it was the belief of the coroner that, based on the eyewitness reports and the balance of probability, that Jessica would have been murdered shortly after her abduction by a person or persons unknown. I hope things were over for her quickly. If I may say it like that, I can't think I could... My head's entertained the ideas of her being locked up for days or held for days or tortured or... I hate to go there. It's a pretty dark place, isn't it? Is. It? It's a very dark place. In a 2014 interview with 60 Minutes, Ricky stated that she had long accepted her daughter was dead. Quote, I will never give up hope. I want Jessica brought home so she can be buried with dignity and as a family we can get some type of closure. At this point, we would just like to know and get some answers. Unquote. Jessica Small was 15 at the time of her disappearance. She was 5 foot 6 or 172 centimetres tall. Jessica Small was 15 years old at the time of her disappearance. She was 5 foot 6 or 172 centimetres tall, slender build, with shoulder-length blonde hair and blue eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was wearing white jeans, a cream blouse and brown shoes. There is currently a $1 million reward for information leading to the apprehension and conviction of her suspected murderer. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Jessica Small, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 If Jessica is still alive today, she would be 38 years old. If you have your own thoughts about the case we discussed today or any case we talk about on this podcast, please search Stolen Lives Podcast on Facebook. 
like our page to make sure you don't miss an episode, and join the discussion group to share your ideas and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter. Search lives underscore stolen and on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please share on your social media of choice and rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. Research and script writing by Onico. Hosting and production is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu.